This is Speaking of Writers. I'm Steve Richards. In 1941, President Franklin D. Roosevelt famously proclaimed freedom of speech as the first of his four freedoms. But his behavior, including confining over 120,000 American citizens in concentration camps, often belied such flowery prose. In the new book, The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of FDR's concentration camps, censorship, and mass surveillance, Independent Institute senior fellow David T. Beto exposes FDR's dictatorial endeavors of spying on U.S. citizens, incarcerating minorities, censoring critics and the press, and essentially annihilating the Bill of Rights. David T. Beto is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and professor emeritus at the University of Alabama. He received his Ph.D. in history at the University of Wisconsin, and he is the recipient of the Ellis Hawley Prize. Beto is also the author of T.R.M. Howard, Doctor, Entrepreneur, and Civil Rights Pioneer with Linda Royster Beto. He is the former president of the Alabama Scholars Association and chair of the Alabama State Advisory Committee of the United States Commission on Civil Rights. Happy to have David Beto join me now here on Speaking of Writers. Welcome to this program. Thank you. I'm no longer chair, though. I don't think uh, I am anyway of the of the state committee of the Alabama uh, of the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights. I was several years ago. So, David, why has this been the story been neglected up to, up until now? Well, I'm not sure why. Um, I think that it has something to do with the historians who write about FDR tend to be sympathetic to FDR, and the focus that they've had is the New Deal. Uh, and FDR's leadership in World War II. And FDR's tremendous charisma, had tremendous charisma. And so all those things put together, and I, I think have dissuaded or not been a motivator for historians to look more deeply into the dark side. Um, the main work we have on the dark side of FDR is Japanese internment. And this book has a lot new to say about that as well. But we haven't looked at other aspects of his uh, attitudes uh, and his policies towards the protections of the Bill of Rights. So who was the real FDR? Who was the real FDR? FDR was came out of a progressive tradition. Uh, you have to look at that background. There were two main influences on FDR ideologically, and this is generally agreed by historians. One of them is his cousin, who we referred to as Uncle Ted, Theodore Roosevelt, who he very much modeled himself after. And the other is Woodrow Wilson. And FDR worked under Wilson as Assistant Secretary of the Navy. So he's influenced by these progressive ideas. Now, Wilson and Roosevelt don't get along with each other, but there are some similarities. And one similarity you see is that comes out with FDR is a focus on the ends. We have uh, social justice. We have an ends that we want to shoot for. We're not going to worry so much about procedures. We're not going to worry so much about constitutional niceties. The important thing is to achieve that desired social end. Uh, and FDR is also a very ambitious politician, um, certainly. Um, and he will compromise. Um, if he has to. But I think FDR is also an ideological president. And I think we underestimate that. He has a certain default position, which is a kind of progressive uh, view 
but not much of respect for civil rights. Civil liberties was was a strain of progressivism, but he ne- he didn't really pick up on that strain very much, except rhetorically. Later, he he does pick up on it, but in his action, not really. How did he manipulate radio? Well, he didn't have to do much initially because uh, once he's elected, it is an emergency situation and the networks basically say to FDR, whatever you want, right? You want to break into our regular broadcasts. Uh, you want your broadcast defined as public service and we won't charge for them. Um, so FDR has kind of full reign over radio to a certain extent. And he has the cooperation of the Federal Communications Commission. Um, and, um, uh, and, and by the late 1930s, really, there are no anti-New Deal voices on radio, which is a lot different than the print press. And that's a lot because FDR... Uh, uses, using various methods ensures that. But FDR has tremendous charisma. He knows how to use the radio. It was once said uh, that FDR could have thrived as a radio broadcaster, um, you know, just on his own because he had that natural at- talent. And he's a little bit like Trump and Twitter in that sense, and that he was going on the radio to sell his ideas quite effectively through fireside chats, through series of speeches, often carried for free by the networks who were afraid not to do that, and by uh, thousands of hours of programs by various New Deal agencies that were often carried for free. It's public service. Speaking of the New Deal, David, did the New Deal accomplish what it set out to do? Well, my focus was was, uh, intentionally focused on the Bill of Rights and FDR's policy towards that. So don't get into that argument so much. But uh, I would say no, because uh, you have double-digit unemployment in 1941 still. You've had recovery, then you've had reversals. You had the great reversal in 1937-38, which led to tremendous losses for the Democrats. So typically, depressions in earlier periods of American history lasted two, three years. This one lasts lasts a decade. So you got to lay that at the feet of FDR to some extent. Uh, But again, my focus in this book, and that's why it's gotten some recognition across the political spectrum, is I don't really take on FDR's economic policies. I don't explore them much. I look at his policies towards constitutional rights and pretty much limit my focus to that. So let's talk about mass surveillance and FDR with mass surveillance. A lot of people think, you know, it started with the Patriot Act, but that's not so. No, and it's done in an interesting way. FDR, after about two years into his presidency, year and a half, maybe, there's increasing opposition. He's fallen in the polls, interestingly enough. Um, um it, he's he's somewhat in trouble politically. So FDR really wants to investigate, to undermine, to discredit this opposition, the political opposition. And the way he does that is he recruits a very ambitious, very effective senator from my home state, Alabama, not my home state, state where I currently live, Senator Hugo Black, later Supreme Court Justice. He, he chairs a committee called the Black Committee, And the focus of the Black Committee is lobbies, lobbying. However, it expands its investigation to include just about any sort of political discussion. 
And one way Black throws witnesses off balance is he gets access to private telegrams. He goes to the FCC and the administration backs him up and he says, look, I want copies of all, you know, access to copies of private telegrams sent by Western Union and so forth. That's over 50 percent of long distance communication. Western Union is like not going to cooperate, but they're basically told to cooperate. So what Black does as a starting point is he says, I want nine months of all telegram communication between every member of Congress and people that are sending telegrams to them, right? So he goes in there and he expands it rapidly. He sends his investigators. Again, the telegraph companies have to keep copies of telegrams under the law. They go into Western Union as staffers, FCC people, and they search thousands every day looking for commentary that is related to lobbying, which is just about anything other than something of a purely personal nature. And it ends up, because they do this for several months, that it ends up adding to something like 3 million. So 3 million private telegrams examined by the Black Committee. That's mass surveillance. But it's not how we normally think of it, because what the FBI is doing during this period isn't mass surveillance. I mean, they're wiretapping phones and things, but it's on a it's on a scale of, I don't know, any one day you got a few hundred people or or fewer that have their phones tapped or that there are communications monitored. So this is a pretty big deal, but we haven't really looked at it much. And Black loses in the courts. The courts eventually uh, slap him down. The press is very, very much condemning Black on this, including very people on the left like Walter Lippmann the ACLU, and so forth, and he loses in the courts. And that provides an important precedent for later congressional investigations. Means, for example, that Joe McCarthy can't get access to private telegrams or uh, wiretapping, that kind of thing. Let's talk about the printing press and another senator who was involved in that, Sherman Minton from Indiana. Well, Minton was Black's protege. In fact, he was Roosevelt's first choice for the Supreme Court because he was such a loyalist. That's why Black was chosen, too. Nothing else mattered other than he was a very loyal, effective figure for the administration. And Minton was, too. Minton is rising up fast. He's a younger man. Um, He is appointed as Black's successor as chair of the lobbying committee once Black goes on the court. And Minton, though, is rather clumsy. And Black was, too, in a way. And one of the things he does is he's very frustrated by not getting by these lobbies are pushing back. He's getting hostile witnesses. They're getting some public sympathy. So he gets so frustrated that Minton proposes a bill similar to a bill Donald Trump kind of supported years ago or proposed. And this is to make it a felony to publish any article in a newspaper known to be false, fake news. Mm. This is part of Roosevelt's idea, too, of, of, of battling fake news. Now, it's unclear who, if anyone put him up to this, but I think I think the evidence is that Roosevelt suggested it as a trial balloon. And Black proposed it. And, I mean, and, and Mitten proposed this bill. And there was universal opposition to it, almost universal opposition across the political spectrum. Even leading New Deal uh, news outlets opposed this 
said this is going too far. And Mitten ended up having to withdraw his bill because there was just universal opposition to it. And that's part of my story, too, that there's a lot of civil libertarians on the left who are pushing back against things that the administration is doing. And that's also true on Japanese internment. So that's a bit different than today in that you have a willingness across the political spectrum of people saying, we're going to cooperate, uh, even though our guy is doing something, you know, bad. Right. We're going to we're going to oppose it. David, what would you like readers to take away from the New Deal's war on the Bill of Rights? I would like, I guess the main thing I'd like them to take away is a hopeful message, as I was just indicating, that there were a lot of people that opposed these initiatives. And, and that includes Japanese internment. Uh, the Attorney General, Roosevelt's own Attorney General, opposes Japanese internment. Uh, there are civil libertarians like Norman Thomas, a socialist. I guess you could say the Bernie Sanders or AOC of his day is very civil libertarian, willing to defend the civil liberties of people he disagrees with. And so I find that to be a rather positive message for the presence. present. Let's get people on the left and the right working together more to defend civil liberties of people on both sides, because if they don't do that, their own civil liberties are all, all the more weaker because there are going to be fewer people speaking up when they're in trouble. So I think I would focus on that, on that hopeful message. But there's a lot of new stuff in here um, and that I think people will find interesting. Um, and it's the product of 15 years of primary documents research. So I think I've added to the scholarly debate. I hope. We'll see. I haven't gotten any big pushback, any big criticism on the book yet. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the research process, the primary sources, and I'm sure a lot of surprises for you in there. Oh, certainly. Um, you know, wonderful set, and I could do it all from my own home, was the American Civil Liberties Union papers, which are really quite massive and have a lot of material in them, a lot of internal debates about just about any civil liberties issue of the time, for example. I went to the Roosevelt Library, Hyde Park, found a lot of interesting material there. Um, so, uh, did some research on the issue of race and in, uh, Memphis, uh, 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 civil liberties, uh, uh, the, uh, the policing of a leading black Republican there, um, and looked at that and found a, a lot of archival material on that. Um, so I could go down the list, but there's, there's a lot out there and it's fortunate now I visited a lot of archives, but it was fortunate during COVID that you can now get a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, on your own computer and do the research. And the press, again, you get a lot of newspapers, you get a lot of background that way. The book is The New Deal's War on the Bill of Rights, the untold story of FDR's concentration camps, censorship, and mass surveillance. It is out now and available everywhere. The author, David Beto, thank you for joining me. Thank you for inviting me. And this is Speaking of Writers.